Westernos, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Hello, Brandon. Hello, Stephen, and good afternoon to you. So there is a war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I heard. I heard uh, a few things about that. It has moved very quickly, and uh, it's one of those moments where you really do feel the immediacy of every bit of news, yeah. every twist of things. And it's the one time we can sort of all agree that Twitter is sort of useful, and so is the 24-hour reportage, um, in that you know what's happening immediately, uh, but it's also very easy to get burned out and exhausted. Totally. And to that point, too, it's it, we have the apparatus that is Twitter and the 24-hour news cycle, but that's also informed by everyone on the ground with cell phones and video. So we're seeing this unprecedented amount of footage coming from an active war zone, too. So it is Tuesday evening here in California, and we are getting many reports today of heavy shelling across the country of Ukraine, uh, including major cities such as Kiev and Kharkiv. Um, the Russian troops are advancing steadily, and there's certainly more, um, just honestly, bad stuff to come. Meanwhile, the United States and other countries are shutting off airspace to Russian planes. There are sanctions being rolled out that will uh, potentially shut Russian banks out of the global economy. Yep. So. And of course, at the center of all of this is people. Right. There's a mounting refugee crisis happening in the states uh, bordering Ukraine. And I guess that's sort of a good way to get into the episode. Yeah. So I was thinking about what kind of story one could cover. You know, I work with Who, What, Why. And thinking about what kind of piece you can do. Well, there's so much coverage of it. How does one do it if they're not on the ground? And one thing I thought of was a writer I had worked with in the past at SF Weekly named Valerie Demicheva. Valerie has bylines at the San Francisco Chronicle. She did stuff for SF Weekly and other places. She is of Ukrainian descent, was born there. And so I reached out to her and said, hey, do you want to do a piece on this? Do you want to see if you can find some people through your contacts, family, friends, and write something? And so she began doing a piece on it. It turned out really interestingly, and it not only revealed a lot for her about what was going on in Ukraine, but also sort of what had been going on in her mind since she left the country as a kid. So let's talk to her. Here's Valerie. Valerie Dimicheva. Valerie, hi. Hello. Hi. Valerie. Thank you for having me with us. Valerie, I've known you for a while, and to this day, I'm still not sure if I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. How close was I? <laughs> uh, if you want to go very, very uh, perfect, it's Demicheva in English, and it's Demicheva um, in the Russian and Ukrainian pronunciation. Got it. There you go. Well, hi, welcome to the show. We um, really debated, Stephen and I, about how one covers something like this when we're not there and the media is doing so much coverage of it. Like, what's what's an interesting approach? And I said, I wonder what Valerie's take on this is. Is she talking to people? And so you and I started working on a story for Who, What, Why um, about what's going on with people on the ground, very focused on the, the human condition side of yeah. things. We were kind of looking to find you know, some sort of essential thing about how people feel about it and something that particularly will um, make sense to an American audience that 
thinks of this as something that's very distant. And I think you talk to some really fascinating, really diverse people. And I think it would be nice to know a little bit about your background and let us know how you were able to get access to all these folks who are still in Ukraine. Um, so I am an immigrant and I moved here uh, from Odessa, Odessa, Ukraine, with both of my parents in 1990, just at the end, um, certainly just before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, all of this time, all I ever wanted to do as a journalist was to cover politics and like hard hitting stories. And I think the first piece I wrote about politics, I went for a ride along with a candidate for the San Francisco um, special election once Gavin uh, left that position. And one of the candidates told me, F that guy who's uh, the interim mayor right now. And I realized I couldn't put that in the piece, even though we never said we're off the record because I was too nervous, frankly. So <laughs> I think my mentality stayed very Soviet. And uh, the thought process I always have is this, this government can just change overnight as <laughs> you know, we're seeing how quickly things happen in um, the former Soviet Union and Ukraine right now. So uh, I came to write this piece when Brandon approached me and asked me, hey, you're Ukrainian. <laughs> do you have thoughts on this? Do you have family there? Do you want to do a personal essay? And I think I was kind of reluctant. I sort of said, oh, let me think about it. Let me see who I can talk to. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't really, I don't know. I wasn't ready for some reason. I didn't think that I had enough expertise. I thought you had to be like a, an analyst <laughs> to even go there. And as I spoke to people um, on the ground through various contacts, just friends of friends, um, and they'd rather not say how I found them because I think they're afraid of someone being able to backtrack and make those connections. There are a lot of social networks in Russia such as Agnaklasniki, um, where you can pretty easily track who's connected to whom in the U.S. Um, but I realized these were stories that I needed to tell, and I had to stop being um, so uh, selfish and backwards, especially since those people are no longer backwards or selfish. They are um, very brave, and many of them were willing to use their full names and, and tell their stories in the cities in which they lived. But uh, I just decided that I needed to be as brave as the people who currently live there. So we set out to do the piece bef just before the invasion. It was about uh, 72 to 48 hours when I uh, agreed to write the story. And we started the interviews. Um, we basically set out to create a snapshot of what um, these folks' lives were like. And it just so happened that right as I was interviewing uh, one of the, the sources, uh, Katya, uh, she started to experience the explosions outside of her home. And I think that's where we... Um, that's where we stopped the piece. And I think ultimately we wanted to kind of create this snapshot of uh, what people were thinking just before the invasion happened and really sort of frame what their lives were like, uh, what they decided to do to prepare. Some people were more prepared than others. Some people were sort of in denial. Some people wanted this to happen, not necessarily wanted, but they were uh, prepared for war. They wanted to actually go and fight, right? And some people are hiding. So I think I'm still continuously finding the purpose, to be honest, because I'm almost still living it. I'm still in touch with Katya. I mean, I've, there are nights when um, she's sending me voice notes all night. What did you hear from the people who are in this you know, very dangerous and terrifying place right now? Yeah. So before the invasion, there were different uh, levels of denial and uh, preparedness, I think, from, from, from everyone. I would say the, the most prepared uh, person was the rabbi. 
he had actually, he lived in Kiev. He sent his family to, to Israel and he has um, eight children and a wife. And he went to Odessa, which has one of the largest Jewish communities and started uh, preparing about 3000 people in his organization for the possibility of an invasion. So he was uh, actually in Odessa uh, when I spoke to him and he was up at <laughs> 2 30 AM. I mean, he was basically available and on call online at all times. And they were truly um, sort of almost in the trenches at that point, preparing food and, um, you know, possible medical equipment. They work with an organization called United Hatzalah from Israel that sent uh, reinforcements. So they wanted to be prepared for the worst, essentially. He said, we prayed and now we're preparing. Yeah, sure. So then kind of on the other end of the spectrum a little bit, you have Anna, who's an engineer, who also didn't really think anything was going to go on, but sort of seemed more content at the time to stay where she was. Tell us about her. Yeah, she always uh, assumed this was just politics, like idle threats. And she has very little trust of, of the government, uh, of all governments. She's not necessarily uh, a huge Ukrainian you know, independence patriot. She grew up during the Soviet Union. And she has seen all kinds of governmental changes and she's not very optimistic because she believes quality of life hasn't improved too much over the years. So she wasn't prepared at all. And, you know, now just like everyone else, she's probably downstairs in her bunker most nights. Um, I, I did check in with her just before the call and she's, uh, she said they're fine. She's hearing things, but she's not seeing things like she's, she's hiding. One of the people you spoke with was a manicurist who I felt had a really unique perspective. Could you tell us more about your conversations with her? Yeah. So um, the manicurist, uh, her name is Katya and her perspective was very, uh, it's almost a, as if she wanted me to feel like I shouldn't have to worry about her. She kept saying these light, um, sweet things like, oh, it's okay if we have to stay inside. And I don't think of course, she, she knew the gravity of what was about to hit her. Um, I spoke to her the morning of the invasion, which would have been uh, Thursday around 7 a.m. Uh, for the first time ever. And her sort of tune was just, I think when this, when it starts happening and she, she did hear an explosion while we were on the phone, um, she thought this would end swiftly. She thought, I think perhaps it's some kind of a military exercise and that's what she was telling me. I think she wanted me to somehow feel relieved. There's something in the culture I experienced myself where you want to make others feel relief. Like you don't necessarily tell your family members that you're sick. Uh, you don't want anyone to worry for you. So she certainly came with that kind of very calming demeanor. <laughs> I, I felt so, so bad that she was trying to calm me and I was trying to, you know, calm her and understand what she was going through. And as the explosions uh, came on and her children were, um, you know, waking up and one of her, her daughters was on a Zoom call, a teenager waiting for the teacher and the teacher never showed. And she called her boss to check in if she has to go into work. She was really concerned <laughs> that she would miss a day of work, you know, and they're being told to stay inside. And she's like, I don't, I don't know if that applies to me. You know, I think all of that actually started hitting her real time while we were doing the interview. And by the end of it, she broke down. She said, I don't understand what, what they're doing to us. Why is this happening to us? And the there, I mean, she couldn't believe it was Russians. We spoke in Russian, right? Um, she lives about an hour uh, south of Kiev. And a lot of people uh, outside of Kiev, they speak both Russian 
and Ukrainian, and a lot of them just communicate to their family in Russian. It's a leftover from the Soviet Union that everyone had to learn Russian. So she doesn't have any sort of animosity toward Russians. That was the, the shock. This was not a, a sworn enemy for her at that point. She didn't quite understand how, um, you know, someone that she would consider a brother or a, a nation that was basically a brother to, to Ukraine could actually do that to them. So the, the story runs up essentially to the moment that the explosions start. And I know you've kept up with some of those folks. So tell us, what are you hearing from people now? Who have you talked to and, and what are they saying about what's going on? Of the four people um, in, the, in the piece, the one with whom I've had the most uh, connection is actually Katya. She seems like she's trying to continue to keep her family uh, really calm uh, because she, when I hear her, you know, chat with her kids, her voice is so upbeat. I think she doesn't want to scare uh, her two young daughters. They're nine and 15. When she talks to me, I can hear her husband actually snoring in the background sometimes. So I think she's whispering under the blanket (laughs) and she's really terrified. Like so many people um, she's hiding in a pagval, which is an underground sort of uh, usually storage area for vegetables and things that you don't want to put in your fridge, things that you get at a farmer's market. Right. And now they're using it as a bomb shelter essentially. And they're having to keep all the lights off. Um, She's very terrified. And I think in this isolation that she's experiencing right now, um, things get really scary. First of all, they hear explosions. They've seen, um, you know, through window slits, planes, uh, chasing each other, as she describes it. She said the sky this morning was completely uh, purple and red. I mean, it's bloodstained when she looks out the window. And what's, I think, in a way, maybe even scarier is this sort of boogeyman. They're getting text messages, or I don't know what kind of communication they're using. She said she doesn't want to reveal the source of what, what the group text is or what messaging application should they use, but they're getting... Um, these letters, and it almost sounds like a, like a horror chain letter saying that do not trust any soldier at all because Russians, Ukrainians look pretty similar. Most people in that region can speak Russian. So Russian soldiers may be trying to trick women and children. This is a chain letter, right? This is probably a rumor. We don't know, but they're, they're taking them to Kiev saying that we're going to help you escape and get you to Poland. And they're using them as potentially human shields or some sort of hostages. Um, It's pretty much the unknown in the Wild West. And uh, I would say Katya is a very trusting person. Um, Anya, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is like kind of uh, pessimistic, I would say, her general outlook about the world. And she said that you can't really trust anyone except your family and friends. That's how we've always lived. And I think what's kind of sad is that um, Katya's mentality is now going back to that, right? Katya's in her 30s and she's starting to think like someone from the Soviet Union who grew up feeling like, you know, you could be hurt by somebody. Um, you know, certainly people who grew up doing Soviet Union felt like um, their neighbor could even tell on them to the KGB or mm. they could get fired from work if someone paddles on them um, for doing something wrong or makes up something about them. So the, the mistrust is pervasive and it's um, really scary. And all of the strides that they made for, for independence, it's like a it's complete regression back to something that was even worse. Yeah, it sounds like it's really uh, opening up some old wounds and um, kind of resurfacing some trauma from 
more challenging times as well again. And on top of that, it's really interesting that you point that out. I think we think because we're seeing images of planes and bombs and plumes of smoke that there's just kind of this visceral feeling of like physical terror of machines and soldiers and things. But what you're talking about is this whole other informational level of disinformation, misinformation is going to be flying around. Of course, you're going to question what you actually know about what's going on in the next town over. All of that is just a whole other psychological layer that is really easy for us to understand because we've been living with misinformation. But it's hard to think about that in combination with the kind of physical terror of explosions and, and war going on around you. That's a good point. And um, initially, I almost actually lost some of these sources because uh, they received letters like uh, text messages that were going around as well saying, don't use WhatsApp, don't use any uh, Telegram. They're, they love Telegram. Don't mm. use Viber. The Russians are now watching everything you say. Turn mm. off your location services. Basically, isolate yourselves. Um, I, I mean, I can't imagine that Russia cracked WhatsApp overnight, you know, so this sort of psychological terror of um, being isolated and watched is just back in full force, something that maybe some of these people hadn't experienced since they were very little children. Yeah. And so were you able to catch up with anybody else that you spoke to earlier this week um, in the last day or so? So um, I know that the rabbi had an evacuation plan. And um, when I checked in with him, I said, did you, uh, did you start evacuating people? And he just sent me back uh, in Hebrew, which I can read somewhat. Um, he said, basically said, pray. <laughs> and that's all I really heard from him. And I could understand not wanting to disclose what mm -hmm. that plan would be or if they're really evacuating because, you know, he probably is scared to talk over social networks. So part of the story, Valerie, is about how you came from Ukraine. And when you came from Ukraine, it was still part of the Soviet Union. So a lot of what surprised you, I think, was this disconnect in the way you thought Ukrainians would think about Ukraine and the way you did. And sort of realizing that your perception of life under the Soviet Union has continued into your modern life. But a big part of that was being surprised at how I don't want to say westernized, but certainly how democracy loving and how independent minded these folks were. And that that in some ways didn't jive with what you remembered as Ukraine, right? Yeah. So I left in um, 1990. I was barely five. And, you know, I had my parents with me and eventually my grandpa came over. Everything I sort of know and feel about living in Ukraine um, comes from their mindset passed down to me about what it was like living in the Soviet Union. And I never realized how much that affected me. Like I would laugh at them when they, um, you know, they experienced deficits of sugar, uh, meat, et cetera. So I would laugh at them when they save every little piece of uh, leftover dinner, right? I, I thought I'm so American. And I think, I think what I touch on in the piece and what I realized about myself is that I definitely have internalized the abundance and capitalism. And like, I don't feel afraid that um, food or goods will be taken away from me, which is a lot of what um, my grandpa and my parents experienced. But I think that I internalized without really realizing it, I internalized the uh, political fears and sort of some of the oppression that especially my grandfather faced, I would say 
he had such an effect on me because not because he taught me anything about, uh, you know, keeping your mouth shut and this term I call Nyrupaisa. Uh, I don't know how many other uh, kids of, of, you know, former <laughs> Soviet Union um, immigrants hear this, but I used to hear it all the time. Don't fuss. It means like, uh, don't, don't fuss, but it also means don't protest. Like don't make a, a show of yourself. Don't draw attention to yourself. I think I heard that a lot just with misbehaving or yelling or saying something contentious, um, you know, something that could be political was just absolutely frowned upon. I have internalized it even into adulthood, even as a fully formed <laughs> person living in a free country. I think, I try essentially not to make a fuss and not to challenge authority. It sounds like, yeah, just total muscle memory from living in an oppressive state. And it makes me wonder also, like, in the same way that folks like your grandpa and even people such as yourself who have internalized these traumas to varying degrees, what is the 2022 event? Like, what will be the reverberations of this now in this new world? Yeah, um, I feel like I can't quite, you know, read the tea leaves of what the future will look like. But one of the things that they said they love about living in today's uh, Ukraine or yesterday's <laughs> last week's Ukraine is that they can post on Facebook. They can be as angry as they want about any government and nobody's going to come and knock on their door and tell them to delete it or worse to hurt them. I, I think this will activate them even more when we're seeing with the president in the street with a <laughs> with a vest on. I mean, can you imagine George Bush putting on <laughs> a bunch of armor <laughs> to fight with Canada or something? I think what we're seeing and what I'm hearing is that uh, seeing Zelensky and seeing all of these leaders uh, take to the streets has activated and uh, solidified uh, Ukrainians' commitment to independence. Because we like to get real meta. Um as you're putting the story together, how did hearing these stories from people and talking to them and being surprised by them, did that have some kind of feedback to you? I mean, how did that cause you to rethink your own version of Ukraine or version of the Soviet mindset? Mm. I don't think that the sort of paranoia that I, and it's a very subtle paranoia. It's not, it's not verbalized in my head. It's just sort of a cloud that's always uh, maybe in the back of my mind. Uh, I don't think that it will ever dissipate. I think I will always think that one day um, we're going to elect someone who will take away our rights and imprison journalists and, um, you know, turn us over <laughs> to our enemies. I think the Soviet mindset or the, the fears that um, my grandpa sort of uh, vaguely passed down to me will always be there. Uh, but I think I realized that it would be cowardly not to fight back in my own mind and to um, take more action in spite of that type of lightweight paranoia. <laughs> so Valerie, Obviously, we're getting a lot of media takes on this from pundits and from the networks. Uh, and so what do you think now that you've talked to people and watched a bunch of stuff yourself? What do you think the media is doing right? What do you think it's doing wrong? What's your take on all that? Um, I think the media is absolutely portraying um, Ukrainians as heroes. And I think that's kind of beautiful to see. And I'm impressed that CNN cycles pretty much <laughs> 24-hour Ukraine. I didn't imagine that this would have this level of, of attention. Um, what I'm a little surprised by is sort of the 
um, I wouldn't, I don't want to say naivete, but I would say some of the, the analysts that I've seen uh, talk about the way Russia is perceiving this, the Russian people, I think they might be a little bit too optimistic and they might underestimate how well um, Russia has invoked sort of the World War II uh, patriotism because throughout the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union, of course, included Ukraine and Russia, um, millions of people died. Every single person that I know of, of every Russian, every Ukrainian has at least one grandfather who either died in World War II or fought all of World War II. So it is sort of the, uh, they call it like it is the, the war that every single person can relate to and every single Russian kind of hates Nazis. <laughs> and for, for Putin to continuously um, call Ukrainians Nazis or to say that there are Nazis there hurting Russians um, that they're attacking Russians or Russian speakers living in Ukraine and to sort of activate uh, Russian, the Russian imagination and the troops that way. I think it's, it's actually working very well. I've spoken to a number of Russians who live here and even Ukrainians who watch Russian television because they enjoy, you know, just hearing the news in their own language. They thought up until the point when Putin really invaded and, um, this war started, they truly believed that there were Ukrainians hurting and uh, attacking Russian speakers and that it was sort of this anarchy or something. They they kind of bought it um, in spite of having access to all of the other media that um, they do living in the U.S. The past week, I've been checking in with Russian friends and some of them say, yeah, but what was Putin supposed to do? I mean, there were they were uh, bullying Russians in Ukraine. He's standing up for them. So I think they are, in spite of everything that they have access to in the US, I think he has uh, used this tool very, very cleverly to try to um, get full support for, or as much support as he can from people who believe the propaganda. One of my contacts, um, one of the people in the story told me that they get sort of clips of what Russians are saying about them and in, in Russia. And she said that they're saying that Ukrainians eat Russian babies. The propaganda campaign is alive and well. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. We're grateful to have you here. Just thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Valerie. I'm really glad you you brought her on the show. That was yeah. uh, that was a good conversation. Well, it's also that interesting thing that happens where you go into a story not knowing what you're going to get, and then sure enough, it opens all of these strange doors uh, into insights and further questions and and all of that. And I mean, even in this conversation, there were things that we were sort of turning over that hadn't shown up in the piece, and. And, you know, it's always just a really fascinating process. We will keep up with Valerie and see what else is going on. She may continue down the rabbit hole of you know, following these people. And until then, Stephen, this has been Journos. See you next time. Take care. Journos is produced by Heather Eagle Ears Wilson.